0: It don't matter, you don't matter Neither does this mindless better. It don't matter where you're from What matters is your uniform Wear your braces round your seat Dr. Martin's on your feet Keep
1: Hello and welcome to episode 1066 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I am Jeff Sullivan of Fangraphs, joined as always by Ben Lindberg of The Ringer. Hello,
0: Ben. How are you? I'm all right. I just overheard you tell your plumber that you would be recording a podcast in the next room, but I couldn't hear his response. What did he say? He said he'll be
1: listening to a podcast while he's doing the work, (laughs) so very podcast-oriented second story of this townhouse.
0: He didn't tell you to learn a real profession and get your hands dirty and do something worthwhile? No, this is a plumber, not my mom. (laughs) What's he fixing? (laughs) Leaky
1: sink. Nothing mm. nothing too interesting. Probably something I could have tried to do myself, but I cannot overemphasize the fact that as a at-home baseball blogger, I am probably the least handy person <laughs> in existence. I mentioned that I blew out a tire on a forest road coming back from Mount Shasta mm-hmm. last weekend, and... I did have a spare and the tire was changed by my girlfriend and another lovely climbing partner named Allison, who did all of the work as I stood there and called a tire center to
0: ask if I could get help. Well, I can't even drive a car, at least not legally. So you're ahead of me there. So you just finished your Fangraphs chat, which I Mm -hmm. read, and one thing I don't think you sufficiently addressed was what Mm -hmm. you think of Marwin Gonzalez and Aaron Hicks. (laughs) Isn't it amazing how the the hive mind just picks certain players every week that are just on everyone's mind? Like You answered, must have been four Aaron Hicks questions (laughs) and maybe three Marwin Gonzalez questions, and I assume that for every one you did answer, there were ten more you didn't answer. How does this happen? I guess it's a a very selective sample here. If you ask the typical baseball fan about Marwin Gonzalez or Aaron Hicks, he or she would probably say, who? I've never heard of those people. But you get fantasy players and you get very attentive baseball fans and people who are interested in stats. And so... They tend to land on the same players who are hitting well or surprising or unexpected in some way. But it always amazes me, not just with players, but also with teams, how this consensus coalesces around certain people and teams every single week about which is the most interesting. And there's the week where everyone writes the Mike Trout article. This was the week (laughs) where everyone wrote the Astros article. I might have to write an Astros article next week. I don't know. I kind of shirked my responsibility this week. And my editor was asking me to write an Astros article, and I didn't have anything to say about the Astros. And I don't know that uh, most people who wrote about the Astros did either, but they wrote about the Astros because they're really well, good. Well, thanks, because I just did it yesterday. <laughs> I know. You did. Rob Arthur did. Everyone did. Because. Yeah. They were coming off a seven-game winning streak or whatever, and they have a double-digit division lead, but they haven't really done it in that interesting a way, I would say. I know. I (laughs) noticed. That was the trouble with the research. It took like five hours to find a post that said they've been good. Right, yeah, because they were expected to be good, maybe not quite this good, but they're – Good, and they've kind of been good at everything, but not like historically great at something. They're just a really good baseball team in a division that's been weak, and so there's a pressure to write about them because they have the best record in baseball, but... There isn't always something to point Out about the team with the best record in baseball Beyond mm-hmm. the fact that they have the best record In baseball which anyone can see without reading Your post so it can yeah. be a struggle at times You're Right and I think what's what's Kind of
1: challenging here is that people are Most likely to read an article in this instance About the Astros if you have the title That this. hey this is a post about how the Astros are really Good mm-hmm. but what's actually interesting would Be like an in-depth breakdown on what Jake Marisnyk and what Marwin Gonzalez are doing <laughs> yeah. to actually be good hitters but if you put Marwin Gonzalez and Jake Marisnyk in the headline then people are less likely to read it, although based on the chat evidence, maybe that's not true. I would like to make clear that while there were probably a million questions submitted in there about Marwin Gonzalez and Aaron Hicks, that was not a disproportionate representation of the questions being asked of me. There were very few questions about other players and several more about Gonzalez and Hicks that showed up. And what I have to imagine is that this has to be driven, in large part, probably two things, and they're kind of related. One, these are players who were not very good before, so there's the breakout thing which people love, but also... Mm -hmm. Figure Even if questions aren't specifically about fantasy baseball in the chat, it's being driven probably by fantasy content, maybe Mm -hmm. elsewhere. I'm sure there are posts that are about like, hey, Marwin Gonzalez and Aaron Hicks aren't owned in the majority of leagues. Maybe you should consider picking them up. And so then people will ask about them and I am more inclined in this case to believe well now I'm answering a question about them again in a live podcast <laughs> but I'm more inclined to believe in Hicks's improvement because I think he's always had a really good eye and now he's basically just zoned in on pitches up and mm-hmm. he's not swinging at anything down which is neat although now pitchers will just throw him stuff down and Life is cyclical, and you die. <laughs> Marwin Gonzalez has hit—I believe I saw—ten home runs in Houston and two home runs on the road. He's yeah. hit like a bunch of—I don't know—like wall scrapers or Crawford boxes shots or stuff off the foul pole. It's just like he's hitting for power without really hitting for power, you know. So I don't buy that. But he's also walking a bunch more, and he's a switch header, and maybe something just clicked. So he's obviously. Interesting to enough people that he probably Deserves a post but if you write a post that has Barwin Gonzalez in the
0: headline of it you're gonna Get
1: maybe 2000 clicks
0: yeah Would be interesting if they had just Acquired him and he were taking Advantage of the stadium In that way and you could say well Mm -hmm. maybe they looked At his spray chart and they saw that he was Perfectly tailored to this ballpark and All of his fly balls would go out But he's been playing for the Astros Since 2012 and (laughs) that Hasn't been the case so yeah I don't know another question you got was which you didn't have an answer to, and I don't blame you, from a reader named Greg, was if the home team provides the bat boys and the road <laughs> okay, team. this is going to be one of my banter. <laughs> okay, points. yeah. So if the home team provides the bat boys and the road team gets one of those bat boys in their own uniforms. Does that mean that every team keeps 29 different tiny road uniforms (laughs) hanging somewhere under the stands for their visitor's bat boy? (laughs) And I love the mental image of 29 different tiny uniforms (laughs) hanging under the stands. I didn't have a good answer because there was something
1: on the fly. I didn't have time to pull up some research, but Mm -hmm. my chat. Transcript has since received two Comments underneath by Mm -hmm. a username Rosen380. Let's see, Rosen380 Says, it seems like it would make more sense for the Road teams to bring the uniforms with them Especially (laughs) if they want to match an alternate Jersey the team might be trotting out that day Mm -hmm. Further from Rosen380 from Wikipedia Visiting teams, on the other hand, usually do not know who will be serving as their bat boys on the road, and thus will send uniforms of various sizes yeah. to accommodate bat boys of varying heights and weights. A bat boy may be provided his own number, but will usually wear double zeros or BB. In its place if a bat boy uniform Does not have a first name on it it will usually have The term bat boy or no name at all By the way I love that they go by first Names it is just so infantile It's like (laughs) how much more could you just Make clear these are not actually people Associated with our big league Club
0: yeah (laughs) yeah Well that's a more logical explanation But a lot less fun than the 29 different tiny uniforms (laughs) Also bat boys what a thing to exist it's 2017 I know all right what else did you want To banter about okay so just real quick a Point out something
1: I just noted to you Pre-podcast throwaway point but I was Writing about Corey Dickerson the other day because he's bizarre And I love the players who are bizarre he's Bizarre for several statistical ways But there's also one more way when I looked him up on Baseball reference the advantage of baseball Reference is the full biographical Information and Corey Dickerson goes by Corey Even though Corey is his middle name his given First name is Mm Mackenzie which is A name that I think you ordinarily Associate with somebody's six-year-old daughter (laughs) But he is Mackenzie Corey Dickerson and according to baseball reference he is the first McKenzie in the history of Major League Baseball Mm -hmm. first name or last name as a matter of fact
0: yeah I wonder middle name how many unique names you get per year Sam and I used to talk about unique pitching lines and how those happen much more often than you'd expect but Mm -hmm. unique names probably less common than unique pitching lines but I wonder how many you get in a typical year
1: I'm looking up a history of McKenzie's even in minor league baseball, and I'm scrolling, and I'm scrolling, (laughs) and there's a very short list of McKenzie's as first names even in the minors. However, there is currently a McKenzie Mills, who is in somebody's system, looks like the Nationals, Mickey Moniak, Mm -hmm. prospect of the Phillies. His first name is McKenzie, McKenzie Matthew Moniak. Mm -hmm. I'm sure I'm pronouncing that incorrectly. There's a Tristan McKenzie which is extremely this generation yeah he plays in the Indian system but McKenzie unusual name Corey Dickerson he's got it just another way that Corey Dickerson is unlike almost any other player in the game (laughs) all right good to know Mm -hmm. I have one more banter thing before I mean this is basically going to be a banter episode I'm not going to lie to you but Mm -hmm. let's see Scott Boris has been making the rounds this week you have probably read some of this, or maybe seen references to it, but Scott Boris has been making the rounds with ESPN and, you know, his good bud, John Heyman, mm-hmm. talking about Jake Arietta. Jake Arietta has a high ERA. The season struggled kind of down the stretch last season, but he's in his contract year, and Boris is his agent. Boris is not just talking about Jake Arietta for no reason, he's talking about him for a very good reason and I'm just going to read some uh, Boris excerpts this is from his talk with ESPN but he he said the same stuff to John Heyman and everyone else so pointing out Arietta's numbers and also his declining velocity I will quote the question becomes what's Kershaw averaging he's throwing 92.5 miles per hour Greinke is throwing 91.8 Scherzer, when he was a free agent, was throwing 92 miles per hour. We're going to sit here and evaluate a player on a 60-day moment or a 10-start moment when he has three years of history. Don't do it. That's not fair. That's not an evaluation. I wanted to bring this up because when you guys talk about what an elite pitcher is, I want you to know Scherzer in 2014 gave up 7 runs, 5 runs, 4 runs, 4 runs, and 10 runs all before June struck. My point is he's an elite pitcher, referring to Arietta in this case. He did all that in his platform year. No, I'm sorry. That was a referring to Scherzer anyway he's an elite pitcher he did that all that in his platform year Jake is throwing at better levels than what Scherzer did so Scott Boris has not only come to Jake Arietta's defense but he has directly compared a very slumping Jake Arietta to a contract year Max Scherzer when he was one of the top five or ten starting pitchers <laughs> in all of baseball I don't know what the benefit is of talking to Scott Boris about stuff like this I understand Boris will want to talk about mm-hmm. this stuff, of course, and he'll look for an outlet, and he will invariably find an outlet, but it feels a little bit like booking Kellyanne Conway, yeah. you know, and then <laughs> right. complaining that you're not getting a straight answer. Mm-hmm. I'll say these are numbers I did not make up over the past calendar year, so not just two months of Jake Arietta, but over the past calendar year, Jake Arietta is tied in Fangraph's War with Kevin Gosman. He's tied in... ERA minus with Matt Garza, he's tied in FIP minus with Colin McHugh and he's tied in xFIP minus with Wade Miley. All of hmm. these guys fine? Not Max Scherzer. Fine pitchers? Yeah. Certainly not Max Scherzer. I guess I will have to confirm that Matt Garza has been a fine pitcher. At least one number says that he has been, who's to say. But Jake Arrieta over the past year has been, you know, adequate, boosted presumably by last year's really good Cubs defense problems this year are I don't think about to suddenly go away. He's not getting grand balls. His slider or cutter whatever you want to call it has been horrible by the results. So he's throwing it less and less. He's still getting strikeouts. He's not giving up very many walks. So, you know, there's numbers there and Arietta isn't a bad pitcher at this point, but there are clear I think mechanical concerns. The velocity being down is a problem and I just don't know what you're supposed to think about it. I don't know how a team could look at Jake Arietta over the past year and think, I want to give that guy $200 million as a free agent. I should also point out that Arietta is going to be older as a free agent than Scherzer was when he signed his deal with the Learners and, by association, the Nationals organization.
0: Yeah, I guess Boris is hoping that they won't look at Jake Arietta over the last year. They'll just look at his quote <laughs> and take his word for it. I, yeah, I mean, anytime... Boris comes to the defense of his client, you can assume that almost the opposite of what he is saying is actually (laughs) the case and, you know, he comes up with interesting arguments that could fool people who don't look into them too deeply or don't actually check the math, but the math is almost always wrong. And uh, (laughs) that's fine. That's what his job is. And he has done an excellent job of getting his clients lots of money. So whatever he's doing, he should probably keep doing. It's not like... Anything he's saying about Jake Arrieta to a reporter is going to sway a GM or someone in a baseball operations department. But he's had a lot of success doing end arounds and talking directly to ownership. And those people are maybe not examining the claims with as much skepticism as they should be. And so maybe he does hoodwink people with quotes like this, but yeah there's especially when he has concrete claims in there that you can evaluate it's always completely way off and I enjoy seeing how he twists the facts to sort of (laughs) suit the message that he's trying to send. It's always very convoluted and often you can't completely call it out as a lie. There's like a way that it could kind of be true if you interpret it in a, a certain sense. But this time I don't even know how you could come up with any kind of interpretation that would make it true right it's not entirely like but similar to
1: i guess arguing against climate science by saying that the science is unsettled Mm -hmm. and you know we don't know what all the effects are going to be that's true Uh, A lot of it is kind of theoretical or extrapolation, and we don't know exactly how the Earth is going to be destroyed by our (laughs) occupation of it. However, we have a pretty good idea that it's going to happen, Mm -hmm. and the overwhelming majority of the objective independent studies on the matter all agree. I don't need to get into the actual climate science of what's happening to our planet, but it's not a very convincing argument to say, well, the science is unsettled. (laughs) Just like Boris can point to facts that are true about Jake Arrieta, he was an ace he was an ace for a year and a half two years what have you he's been a very very good pitcher but if you wanted to extend that you could say Felix Hernandez deserves to be considered in the same way and he Mm -hmm. certainly does not he's declined rather significantly in terms of I don't know everything Mm -hmm. and so uh, the Boris raises interesting points that are in defense of his clients that hint at something that's true or Uh, He's right that Arietta should not be evaluated based on his like ERA of five or whatever it is over the 10 starts he's made this year. That's absolutely correct. Mm -hmm. All evaluation windows should extend further than that. The problem is that even second half Arietta last year was not very good. And so Boris raises a valid point. But what's unsaid is actually this point isn't really very helpful. So in one sense, Boris has this business where he spends a lot of time trying to put out Really effective let's just call it propaganda Mm -hmm. About his clients and From uh, I think the perspective of Someone like you or myself or an analyst It's pretty easy to see through Because we don't need Scott Boris's help to Analyze a baseball player right but This is where it becomes quite handy That Scott Boris doesn't deal with Analysts he goes (laughs) out of his way to Not have to talk to those people he goes Directly above them and the front Offices can't really complain because ultimately Everyone reports to the owner and then the Owners just aren't really necessarily So well versed in this even though no owner Gets to that position without being Very smart about money they are Generally not so smart about the baseball Parts of money (laughs) So yeah there's that aspect this Actually I guess I might as well submit we'll Talk about this now as a question I received In last week's chat and that Dave Cameron also received in this Week's chat that I will propose to you Would you rather have
0: Scott Boris's job Or Theo Epstein's job Hmm I think Theo's Right because Theo makes plenty of money and could make more if he wanted to. And it's enough that I don't know that I would even notice the difference between being Boris rich and Theo rich. And so Theo is beloved and respected and admired. Boris is admired and respected by some people, but loathed by many other people. <laughs> and he's certainly not beloved by anyone except his clients, perhaps. So I think. That Theo is is Far better right I mean maybe I don't know whether Theo's job is harder Because he has to Go collect the players and Boris I don't know Boris Is having teams come to him And saying we'll pay this For that guy and Theo's having To figure out which players to pay So maybe it's a more difficult job But the rewards are Far greater I think Just in terms of national Notoriety and maybe in baseball notoriety too, and and just kind of your relationship with the fans. You have fans who are rooting for you and grateful for things that you did, whereas Boris never does. The easy answer is that you would much rather be
1: Epstein. He's already won the two most desired championships in baseball. So of course, you'd rather be Theo Epstein because he's just like achieved more than arguably any player in the last... 10 or 20 years except for Mike Trout probably but if you say maybe if you take this question to a year ago before Epstein won with the Cubs then I think it's a question obviously there's respect admiration whatever but I think that it seems like there would be a huge difference in the pressure that you feel on a day-to-day week-to-week basis because at the end of the day Scott Boris's job is seems remarkably easy he's got these all-star clients And they kind of make their own arguments. And of course, Boris works as hard as he can to confuse old white men into giving them more money than they maybe deserve. But the players sell themselves. And so Boris would be required to do quite little work aside from, you know, checking in on the players, all that day-to-day stuff, just to maintain a relationship. Whereas... You have such a public position as the general manager of a high-profile organization, and you need that team to win. Fans only will respond to winning and losing, and it seems like there would be a lot of stress, a lot of gray hairs, a lot of lost hairs. And so it's a question, I guess, of which do you value more, assuming... Boris and Epstein are both substantially rewarded for their work financially. Neither one of them is hurting for money, but it comes down to do you want that respect and admiration more or do you want an easier job more? And I actually don't know the answer to that since, Mm -hmm. I mean, who hates Scott Boris? Like GMs and fans, but who cares what the fans (laughs) think that you're not working for them? You're working for players. And I think the players love Scott Boris.
0: Yeah, well, I'm sure Boris's job has been extremely difficult at times. Maybe he's made it into an easier job just by being so successful, but it doesn't seem like he's really resting on his laurels. He does a lot of interviews. He has a ton of clients. Of course, he also has a large organization with people who are handling the day-to-day stuff. And then Boris just gets called in as the closer. He works on the really big deals. So maybe his job is not that difficult on a day-to-day basis now, but he seems so Driven to make the most money for his clients and or himself That doesn't seem like he's really lazing around and enjoying a lot of free time I don't know, I don't know Scott Boris's schedule But it doesn't <laughs> seem all that low stress to me I mean, negotiating seems like a high stress thing Maybe it's not so stressful when you have the track record that Boris has But just negotiating is something that I find Unpleasant in my own life when I have to do it on the rare occasions when I have to. So for that to be my job, I would dislike. Of course, that is part of Theo Epstein's job, but it's not the bulk of it.
1: Right. I think there's a uh, there's a difference between how Scott Boris's job actually is and how it could be possible to conduct Scott Boris's job because <laughs> what we don't know and what would be really interesting is to know like. What's, I guess, the replacement level contract Mm -hmm. that Scott Boris could get? Like if he did absolutely nothing, but I guess own the rights to representing Bryce Harper. Let's say Boris does nothing. Zero (laughs) outreach. He just sits there, thinks they have to go through me Mm -hmm. at the end of the day. Is he going to get? A smaller contract for Bryce Harper and I'm not sure that it's true I'm not sure that he would I don't know how much of that negotiating is like getting an extra five or ten million dollars or mm-hmm. I don't know maybe an extra year maybe an opt-out clause but like Scott Boris is in control of Bryce Harper's future contract, assuming Harper doesn't, you know, change that. But Harper seems like he's unlikely to do that. It would be interesting, though, if we will enter an era where players decide to represent themselves more and more as so much of the data is just out there that the players, like teams will know who they want just by looking at the numbers. They don't need to go through agents anymore. I don't know. That gets complicated. Agents do stuff that's important. Players don't know how to do it. Mm -hmm. But to get back to the point, if Harper is looking at something like a $400 million contract, how much is boris really going to be able to do like if the yankees come to boris and say we're going to give harper this much and then i don't know the the red sox or the dodgers or whoever says we want to give him this much all boris needs to do is inform the other teams hey this team offered this much and Mm -hmm. just sit and wait right Mm -hmm. and then do the paperwork when someone throws money at him so what is boris really doing by being aggressive and i i just don't know i would love to know what boris could do by doing a lot less than he seems to actually do
0: yeah well here's one Related question, would you rather be a stat person for a baseball team or a stat person for the Boris Corporation, the person who is coming up with these arguments about Jake Arrieta and Max Scherzer <laughs> oh. or, or Matt is framing not being all that bad or not mattering or whatever, all the weird... Boris arguments in support of his players He's probably not coming up with those On his own, at least most of the time He has a large research department Which he seems proud of I'm sure there are very intelligent Qualified people in that department Who are not really using The most of their skills Because they're trying to come up with these Bogus arguments using very basic stats So it doesn't seem like it would be that hard Now, I'm sure they're also doing other things They're probably putting together real reports to try to optimize players' performance and and that sort of thing. But would you rather work for Boris, presumably making more money than you would for a team? Let's say you're making twice as much money, three times as much money, who knows how much more money, but you are doing it in service of Boris and players making money, which is not a ignoble goal or anything, but maybe it's not quite as personally exciting as winning a World Series, which is the typical quants goal for a baseball team. So which one of those do you choose? Can I introduce, this might change things, but could I introduce a third option? You have mm-hmm. those
1: two or you could be sort of like a stat consultant or something for a specific player or three. Mm. Yeah, So that'd be fun. Three options. And mm. I only introduced that one because I think that one would be the most Desirable You'd have the most Direct effect
0: mm-hmm. I guess that's Probably part of The Boris person's Job also If if there's yeah. So that it's probably Yeah that's yeah. true
1: mm-hmm. Third challenge Is there's less Relative to being a general manager, there's certainly less adoration and adulation for just being some team's quant, you know, one of several quants. So mm-hmm. you're not really going to get that respect aside from yeah. the occasional article written about how your team is forward thinking, even though every team is forward thinking mm-hmm. now.
0: Yeah, you might not get singled out by name, but if you tell people I work for baseball team that's probably mm-hmm. a more desirable job than I work for an agent, I guess. I, I don't know. They're mm-hmm. both baseball stats, so maybe they're both cool, but probably working for a team is something that would excite the typical person more.
1: Right. It would excite the typical person, although already if I, I have told enough people I write about baseball and then they get kind of excited, but it... I don't know. It doesn't seem to add that much to my life Mm -hmm. to tell people, hey, I work about baseball. And then I guess the majority of people I run into don't care about baseball. So that's kind of a non-starter right there. Yeah. So I don't know how much of a window you have into the life of being I guess like an agent's quant I have none. I have not I don't really know much about what that lifestyle is like, but I know enough people in baseball that I know that it's underpaid and very demanding. Your hours are crazy and you're away from home for at least most of spring training seems to be the way that it goes and you can't really book anything for seven or eight months of the year in terms of pursuing stuff in your own life. I don't know what it's like to work with an agent. I would assume that it's less horrible (laughs) yeah. than working for a team and I think there's also I guess maybe the reward is greater if you're for a team not only because the team could be successful but you might like find your guy and then your team goes and gets that guy and if he's good then hey that's great and you've Mm -hmm. given this guy an opportunity so that could be rewarding but there's also the challenge of you're kind of having to monitor everyone in baseball, which gets overwhelming. And mm-hmm. I really enjoy going in depth on individual guys. I would like to write an article about Marwin Gonzalez more than just the Astros. Like I wrote a post about Chris Tillman that went up on Friday and I like getting really deep into what I think are mechanical flaws or things a player could do better or worse. Mm-hmm. And I think if you are working with an agent, you have a smaller list of players that you're sort of responsible for. Yeah. That I think it's less daunting to think about helping the cases of those players as opposed to trying to monitor everything
0: happening in the majors and the upper levels of the minors. Yeah, I think I agree. One other unrelated thing I wanted to bring up, I don't know whether you saw the video of the brawl between the West Michigan Whitecaps and, I don't know, the Dragons. I don't even know where the Dragons (laughs) play. (laughs) They're the Dragons. But minor league teams, they brawled. It was on Sunday, but the suspension was just handed down. A 30-game suspension for Whitecaps reliever Eduardo Jimenez. And the thing that Jimenez did is he came right into the middle of the brawl And he threw a baseball as hard as he possibly could (laughs) at one of the opposing team's players. So you can uh, find the video pretty easily. Probably I can send you a link. It's about 50 seconds into this. And he really does just whip a baseball at almost point-blank range at an opposing player. And points for originality, points subtracted for assault. (laughs) But this is... uh, This is something I've never seen in a brawl. It is something that I hope never to see again because this looks really dangerous. I just want to recognize the person who was hit by the baseball for his stoic reaction to getting drilled by a baseball in the middle of a baseball brawl. He just totally no-sold it. He just almost gave no reaction. It's really impressive. He is Dragon's reliever Jesse Stallings, who is... I guess I can tell you who the Dragons are now. They are the Dayton Dragons, of course, the Midwest League A-ball affiliate of the Cincinnati Reds. And Jesse Stallings, he's a second-year relief pitcher for the Dragons, and he just didn't react at all to getting hit by this pitch. So he's a reliever. Jimenez, who threw the ball, is also a reliever. So he's a professional pitcher, and he wasn't doing the full windup, but he did sort of take a crow hop like it was— Uh, uh, He put a lot of force into this He was not just throwing it I would wager that he has as much Force behind this throw as he would An actual throw Despite there not being a mound So I don't know how hard you would Estimate he is throwing this pitch If you have seen the video by now But obviously this is From a distance of I don't know Five feet or something He's getting drilled by this baseball And it looks like it hit him in the leg Or maybe the thigh area which Probably has something to do with how little reaction he showed. But coupled with the surprise and whatever pain there was, I'm impressed by Jesse Stallings' reaction to this. It's possible that he does not feel pain.
1: It feels a little like that scene in Saving Private Ryan where the two soldiers throw their helmets at one another because they're out of bullets. (laughs) Right. Right? (laughs) Yeah, so points... For, like you said, creativity here to bring out the ball. But what does it say about a player that he has so little faith in his hand-to-hand combat skills that the only way he knows to enforce his own will is by throwing a baseball? Like, we talk about how baseball needs to come up with a better way of policing its own game than just pegging each other with baseballs. But look how deep it runs. This is all they know how to do. <laughs> and we've seen in brawls that, like, anyone this side of rooted or door doesn't know how to throw a punch, which is fine. I don't know how to throw a punch. Mm -hmm. I hope that I never have to, but none of us are good at it. But I don't know. Is this like really smart or (laughs) really embarrassing? I don't know the answer to
0: that. Well, it's, I think, embarrassing in a larger life context, but in the context (laughs) of baseball brawls, which is just totally silly and nonsensical and doesn't seem to have anything in common with real life, it's smart. I guess, like the typical baseball brawl, especially for a bullpen, they come out there, they stand around, they mill about for a bit, and then they go back to the bullpen. Often the brawl is over by the time they even get there. So he's taking it seriously. He's... He's exploiting an inefficiency here where everyone else is not throwing baseballs at each other, right? and they're just standing around. (laughs) I don't know what the force is of getting
1: hit by a baseball versus the force of a punch. Certainly like a minor league baseball player punch. I have no Mm -hmm. idea. They're probably kind of similar. The size is about the same. I don't know how fast a fist goes, but you know, getting punched hurts,
0: whatever. Where did he aim or hit the guy? Yeah, I don't know where he's aiming, but he seems to hit him like on the upper leg or thigh area, it looks like. Okay,
1: and so from that distance, he probably wasn't trying to hit him in the head. Probably so not. the advantage here is that if you're striking someone from a distance, you're basically applying a punch, except you're not going to be punched back because you're too far away. Mm-hmm. Now, granted, the, <laughs> then you're out your baseball, and then, you know, unless you run away, you're in the mix of it, and yes. there's going to be a fight, but at least you know you get the first blow. He did run so away, basically. <laughs> By the way, he, <laughs> well, he, then that's,
0: <laughs> this is exactly how I might fight in a brawl. yeah. You know, it's better than a bat. Yeah, I mean, maybe he doesn't know how to punch, but he does know how to throw a baseball. That's what he does as a job. So if you're in a brawl situation, everyone uses the weapons available to them, right? And he's this is the best weapon available to him. So you said it was a 30-game suspension? Is that yes. right, 50? Thirty. 30. Okay, Bryce Harper got three games, four at
1: first. Hunter Strickland got six. Is that warranted? <laughs> why would a guy get a longer If you have a brawl there's going to be suspensions Because there's going to be fisticuffs People will be throwing punches mm-hmm. I get someone should be like kicked out of the game If they bring a bat into the brawl But if you have a baseball and you're not head hunting mm-hmm. It's kind of the same As throwing a <laughs> punch right? If someone throws a punch and gets suspended 5 games And this guy throws a baseball And gets suspended 30 games why? Why is that the case Punches you're trying to hit somebody's head A baseball he hit his lower body unless he's a terrible pitcher from five feet away, he wasn't aiming for the upper body. So I get that he gets a longer suspension because he like broke the under rules and used a weapon, right. but it's like a worse weapon than what he already has on his arms. It's safer for him. It's probably safer for the player getting hit by the baseball because there's less risk of getting concussed. This is no, he deserves a shorter suspension as a matter of fact. <laughs> All baseball brawls just should, should just be solved by everyone bringing a baseball out and getting to huck one. One baseball at anyone else's lower body. That's how they want to enforce the things, right? That's how baseball wants to police its own game. Everyone gets to huck a baseball at somebody on the other team and that's it. He deserves either half the suspension of anyone else in the brawl or he deserves no suspension and a promotion <laughs> and like a raise i i've come fully around on bringing the baseball out the way that it was used it's better than i don't know like if you had a like a a billiard ball in your hand and you just club someone in the forehead you know then that would be mm-hmm. terrible but If you did that with a baseball or like a cricket ball, that would be worse. Or like a rock. Yeah. never use rocks. But no, this is fine. This is totally fine. I approve of this behavior. I would like to know what Grant Brisby would write about it if this happened in the major leagues. Yeah. I am completely for it relative to the alternative.
0: Yeah, there's probably some alternate universe where this is just the tradition. And for hundreds of years, players have thrown baseballs at each other in (laughs) baseball brawls. And no one thinks anything of it because that's the way it's always been done. But yeah, I think... A thrown baseball by a professional pitcher probably has more potential to injure if the intent is to injure than a punch thrown by a baseball player, but I would think that a punch to the face versus a thrown ball to the leg slash thigh area, assuming that was his intention, those do seem fairly equivalent, I would think, in terms of their likelihood of injuring the person, so... I don't know, other than the fact that we don't want a slippery slope where you can start bringing any weapon to a baseball brawl and doing whatever you want, and suddenly people will have tridents and it will be like the anchorman fight. But <laughs> So I guess I see why you would want to stop the expansion of fighting techniques. You kind of want people to stick to the fighting that is weirdly allowed because it's just been grandfathered in. So maybe that's why you don't want people... Expanding the definition of baseball fights to include other weapons, and so you really drop the hammer on. Jimenez for the baseball stunt Even though the actual injury Potential doesn't seem all that different you're right Yeah no I I think that if For
1: such a long suspension I don't think they thought this all the way Through of course you want to deter weapons but there There's a clear line of the weapon If somebody came out took their cleats off and started Swinging their cleats around then that's too Dangerous but just throwing a baseball that's Literally what pitchers do and get suspended A few games for
0: when they're Trying to retaliate for something they just happen to do It from a mound yeah which to be fair Is a lot farther away and The recipient of the hit by pitch is more prepared for it Or at least you know it's a possibility Whereas Stallings here I'm sure was not expecting to have a baseball thrown at him So this is maybe more dangerous than a batter getting plunked by a pitcher intentionally But as we've seen, baseball doesn't punish that At all, or very severely, in most cases. Right, but there's—I mean,
1: there's already an active fight. So if you're going to have a choice between somebody getting hit by a baseball or hit by a punch to the face, because nobody tries to punch the midsection in baseball, they Mm -hmm. all flail at the head. No, he deserves to be in the major leagues tomorrow. (laughs)
0: Let's see if he actually does.
1: I wonder how good (laughs) a—he's good. Is he good? He's got uh, 33 strikeouts and 24 innings as a reliever. He's in the Tigers system. So I'll say this again: reliever,
0: Tigers. (laughs) Yeah
1: strikeouts. Uh-huh. He should be in the major
0: leagues. How many He's walks? probably good enough to be their closer. Uh 8. Okay, so decent control too. All right. I have one more thing to talk about. I don't <laughs> <laughs> this is her episode. Yeah, I guess it is. I, do you have any long things to talk about? No, it's realistically it wasn't going to be long, but there's one Go ahead, do yours. All right. Well, so we got an email this morning from a listener named Duncan and he says in his latest post on his excellent pages from Baseball's Past Craig Wright, and Craig Wright is the famous historian and trailblazing sabermetrician, and I have plugged this newsletter before. I'm a subscriber. It's really great. He combines history and stats in an interesting way. I always learn a lot, so... Duncan, evidently a subscriber too He says in the latest edition Craig examines how Bucky Harris The manager in the Curly Ogden Maneuver that we talked about recently His secret managerial weapon was Getting his pitching staff to hit better Given the declining benches of teams Recently and thus fewer Players available for pinch hitting Do you guys think a team would ever consider Focusing some effort on this? Would having Pitchers hit even just a little Less pitifully be worth the time? If yes, how much of a difference do you think it could Make to a team's offense over a year What are the downsides And so I was just reading this edition of the newsletter Really interesting So Bucky Harris had a long Managerial career and seemed To demonstrate this ability to improve His pitching staffs wherever He went and I'm quoting Now from Craig Harris took over eight different clubs during his long managerial Career and with each team he worked Successfully with his pitchers on becoming better Hitters All eight times the power percentage, isolated power, of his pitchers improved the very first year. And 75% of the time, there was also improvement in their batting average and on-base percentage. Overall, his pitchers came up with a huge 16.2% gain in their offense as hitters. That's a 71-point boost in OPS. And there are cases where the boost was even bigger. His first year as a manager, the Washington pitchers improved their combined Batting average by 51 points from 187 to 238 and That put them 22 points ahead of the next Best hitting team so that Might have propelled the Senators To the playoffs that year the 1924 Pennant they won by only two games So he seemed to have an ability to do This just by making the pitchers Practice when other people Weren't paying attention to it and this was the 20s so pitchers were much better Relative to the typical hitter Than they are today but still pretty bad, and Bucky Harris was able to make them a lot better. So do you think it's worth trying today, and would there be any costs? I don't really know how much teams have their pitchers practice hitting, but I do know there was an article a few years ago
1: where I think the Cardinals had taken some pride in how their pitching staff was hitting, and then I think they had a down year, and there was a bunch of chatter in spring training before spring training about how they wanted to have a renewed emphasis on teaching their pitchers how to handle the bet. Mm -hmm. So I don't know what that entails. I don't know what is sacrificed in order to make time and effort for that, But just looking over the past 10 years of baseball, so the last decade, looking at National League pitching staffs at the plate, the Cardinals have led the National League in pitching staff war at 4.1. They have a two win advantage over the second place Giants, which means just Madison Bumgarner, Mm -hmm. let's be honest. So the Cardinals are in first, easily the best offensive pitching staff over the past decade. And in last place, there are the Pirates at negative 6.8. War over the 10 years so basically there's a one win difference between the Cardinals and the Pirates per year over this span of time just based on pitchers hitting which is one of those things no one ever really pays that much attention to at least on a team basis how much of that is because the Cardinals have had talented hitters like Adam Wainwright. I don't know, versus what the Pirates have had, but there's at least some circumstantial evidence to suggest that the Cardinals have just worked harder at it, and it's it's helped them. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it looks like by win probability, but I can tell you in 10 seconds. The answer <laughs> is that, well, okay, by this analysis, there's a seven-win difference between the Padres, who would now move up to best in the National League, and the Braves, who dropped to last, just barely ahead of the Pirates. All these pitchers, of course, have been bad. At hitting, I mm-hmm. need to make sure you understand that the Cardinals, who have been the best hitting pitching staff over the past decade, have a WRC plus of negative one. So <laughs> yeah. they've been bad, yeah. but they've been better than the Pirates. And I would assume
0: those other numbers are more reliable than the win probability numbers. Pitchers overall this year, by the way, have a negative 16 WRC plus. That's 127-162-162 slash line, which is not quite the worst ever, but maybe like the third worst ever. It's very close to the worst ever, which makes sense because they get worse almost every year. Here's what's interesting. This year, well,
1: I guess I should start with last year, pitchers struck out 39% of the time. Well, this is just looking at the National League, but whatever, that's fine. National League pitchers last year struck out 39% of the time. This year, 36. Mm-hmm. They've gotten a little bit better in making contact, which seems like it shouldn't make sense yeah. since strikeouts go up. And they've batted about 1,700 times. So the sample size is it's not super low. But this year, pitchers, they've improved their contact rate by eh, about point it's small but it's something Mm -hmm. something is going on where pitchers have struck out less often Mm -hmm. and that's interesting now while i have you on the line which i do because this is our podcast i will also pull up american league pitchers by comparison see how they're doing they are striking out more they're at 47 (laughs) percent strikeouts their wrc plus is negative 28 however they bottomed out a few years ago at negative 41 so that's better. Yeah. They've at least walked a little bit, but they are American League pitchers are striking out as if they're an average hitter facing, I don't know, Araldis Chapman, mm-hmm. I guess, career Araldus Chapman.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I don't know if you could do what Bucky Harris did consistently now. If you could go from worst to best, I mean, that would be worth something. So I don't know what the opportunity cost is because obviously pitchers work harder in a lot of ways than they did in Bucky Harris's day. I mean, just conditioning-wise and running and lifting and the recovery that's needed to heal their bodies after throwing as hard as they do. I mean, there's just a lot more exertion. It's more strenuous to face hitters, all else being equal. And of course, the workloads are lower, but there's a reason for that. So maybe having them hit more would impair their performance in some way on the mound. Maybe it wouldn't. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Players have a lot of downtimes, so it's <laughs> possible that this is something that teams could get better at. You'd need pitchers to buy into it, I guess. Maybe Bucky Harris was great at motivating his pitchers to care about hitting, which is something that some pitchers really care about and others probably couldn't care less about. They're focused on pitching. They're not really getting paid based on their offensive performance unless they're a real outlier in in one direction or another. So I don't know. I, I just don't know enough, I guess, about the typical player's schedule and what the cost would be and what they wouldn't be able to do if you were having them drill more and pay attention to hitting more. But it does seem like the sort of thing where if you got one of those good-natured intra-team competitions going and you had the players motivated, it would be worth trying.
1: Yeah, I think it's kind of tough to sell just because I think all pitchers know that pitchers can't hit and so I think it's human nature to look at that and think okay well there's no point in working here we're always going to be bad and uh, the team might have difficulty selling the fact that any little slight advantage is still an advantage if you hit 100 instead of .090 or something that is a better hitting pitching staff that makes a positive difference Mm -hmm. but it seems like they're just so bad that maybe players just don't feel like they want to put in the work because the gains are They're hard to feel, I guess, on a team level because you
0: still turn around most of the time thinking, I just made an out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and any individual pitcher is probably getting fewer plate appearances now than in the past, right? Because you're making fewer starts, you're not going as Mm -hmm. deep into games, you're getting pulled earlier, so... There's less incentive for any one pitcher, I suppose, to devote himself to practicing hitting than when you were, you know, pitching on a four man rotation or whatever and pitching a complete game every time, as you often were in the 20s or before. So less motive, I guess, less motivation, less incentive to get them to work on it. But I wanted to mention it. It's a cool story. And the best part of this is Walter Johnson, who was Bucky Harris's star pupil, good hitter before he was managed by Bucky Harris, but then became a great hitter under Bucky Harris. And Walter Johnson, just an incredible hitter, which I either never knew or had forgotten. We, of course, know about his pitching exploits. He's maybe the best pitcher ever, at least relative to his contemporaries. But his hitting is pretty incredible, too. Speaking of what makes leaderboards interesting, we were saying that (laughs) a big gap between number one and number two is inherently interesting. Well, if you look at the Offensive War leaderboard via the Play Index at Baseball Reference for pitchers' career value, Walter Johnson contributed 13.3 wins above replacement with his hitting alone, and the closest pitcher is early win at 9.6, so... No one is anywhere close to Walter Johnson in career offensive value for pitchers. Of course, he pitched for a really long time, but he was also just excellent, and he was used in the field at times. He was used as a pinch hitter. He hit for power by dead ball era standards, and he had one crazy season under Harris. It was 1925. In 1925, Johnson made 107 plate appearances he hit 433 and with a 455 on base, 577 slugging, he hit a couple home runs. He was just like one of the best hitters in the league on a per plate appearance basis. And he had other really excellent seasons. So, just on top of everything else, Walter Johnson was amazing at, he was also one of the best hitting pitchers ever, which I think is underappreciated, or at least it was by me. Early win is a good pitcher name. Yeah, just great name period. Yeah. I, looking over there's uh one more good win,
1: not a pitcher, but baseball player in the eighties mm-hmm. for it looks like the uh the Pirates, Padres and the Cubs. Marvel win. Marvel one. <laughs> so that's uh yeah, that's two that's good very good names to have yeah. as a uh, as a baseball By player.
0: By the way, Johnson was thirty seven when he had that insane season. His last oh season he was thirty nine and he hit three forty eight, three eighty eight, five twenty two <laughs> with two home runs in only fifty plate appearances, so just a really amazing player all around. Just a strikeout
1: machine when there weren't strikeouts. I know. Oh, well, this this is the pitcher equivalent of the Barry yeah, Bonds. Yeah, I was right? just
0: about to say that. Yeah, I think it is. So much black ink on there
1: well uh, We've already been doing this for like 50 minutes <laughs> Which is good because I didn't know how much material there was Going to be with this next topic I was going to have kind Of a grab bag but one thing I Wanted to briefly acknowledge Mr. Met was in the News this week mm-hmm. right Mr. Met Allegedly flipped off a fan Who we don't need to talk about the fan social media Account but it looks like they were two villains here but Mr. Met will be dealt with internally by the Mets because he flipped off a fan, even though by definition Mr. Met cannot flip off a fan because he doesn't have a middle finger. He only has four fingers. He's like a Simpsons character, mm-hmm. etc. I don't have much to say about that story except for I'm sure the fan deserve it, and Mr. Met should be fine, but whatever. I'm sure he'll lose his job and he'll move on from there. But it did get me thinking, mascots are weird, right? <laughs> there are there are mascots, and that's strange. And it made me curious, more curious about the history of mascots. I know Mr. Met, it turns out, by the way, is the original team mascot, at least in this sense. Mm. Uh, He was created in 1964. Teams had had mascots before that. I can tell you a lot of this is going to come from Wikipedia. A lot of that, this is just going to be excerpts. But many sports teams in the United States have official mascots sometimes enacted by costumed humans or even live animals. One of the earliest was a taxidermy mount for the Chicago Cubs (laughs) in 1908, which makes me think they just killed a bear and stuffed it, and that was their mascot. I can't imagine that would work now. And later, a live animal was used in 1916 by the same team. I didn't research that any further, but what it implies at least is that the Chicago Cubs had a live bear as a mascot Mm -hmm. for their team, which seems like that might be a one-year plan or maybe a one-day plan, (laughs) and then you think better of it because it's a bear, also, I remember I did write an article for SB Nation back in, I think it was 2011, that talked about sort of, before we had these live acting, like, costumed mascots, there was a whole, like, genre of disabled people who were sort of like yes. human mascots, right. and uh, I think the most well-known of those was uh, Charlie Faust. Mm-hmm. Victory uh, Faust, Charlie right, Faust. Yeah. Vic- yeah, Charlie Victory Faust, but there was also Eddie Bennett. There was Louis Van Zelst. There was a little Ray Kelly who was like Babe Ruth's mm-hmm. little assistant. And then, of course, uh, most recently popular, there was Nelson De La Rosa, who was a, a one of the world's shortest men. And he kind of hung around with Pedro Martinez mm-hmm. for some reason. And he was just there. And then they had a falling out, which was Odd, and then Nelson De la Rosa passed away a few years later. But here's a history of human mascots who proclaimed themselves to be good luck. There were uh, in there a couple of people who had humpbacks, hunchbacks, mm. and then for some reason, I guess a hundred years ago, that was considered to be good luck. I don't know how to explain what was happening in the world back then, but there was war. I'm sure people were confused and looking for anything they could get. But one thing led to another, and it took me to the mascot Wikipedia page. Firstly, do you think you could name how many Major League Baseball teams do not currently have an official mascot? Huh,
0: I don't have a great sense of this I, Since I grew up watching the Yankees And never rooted for a team that had a mascot It's always seemed like a strange institution to me Although the Yankees did have a very strange mascot For about three years <laughs> From 1979 to 1981 named Dandy If anyone uh-huh. isn't familiar with Dandy You should Google him Disturbing <laughs> looking monstrosity But I would say a third of teams don't have
1: mascots three teams wow that's what one-tenth one-tenth of teams hmm, don't have that? official mascots uh you named the yankees so that's that's they do not have an official mascot the dodgers don't have an official mascot and technically i guess the angels don't even though they do have or at least have had the rally monkey mm-hmm. i guess, guess that doesn't really count at least it didn't count according to wikipedia but yeah yankees and dodgers long-standing franchises as you mentioned though the yankees have kind of messed around i wanted to read something from the dandy page Dandy was a short-lived mascot of the New York Yankees. He was a large, pinstriped bird that spreaded a Yankees hat. Nothing too weird so far. He had a mustache that gave him an appearance similar to that. The former Yankee pitcher Sparky Lyle, his name was a play on the classic American folk song Yankee Doodle Dandy. This paragraph takes a turn. He appeared at the start of the 1980 season and was so unpopular that he was quickly canceled that Dandy was beaten up (laughs) by fans who didn't want a mascot and quit, leading to the elimination of the character as the Yankees chose not to replace him. So <laughs> dandy colorful History yeah there was a uh, the White Sox had uh, some mascots That they that people were not to Find of there was ribby And rhubarb who were I'll just keep reading excerpts. For most of the 1980s, the patrons at Comiskey Park were asked to endure the antics of baseball's least appealing mascots, Ribby and Rhubarb. One looked like the dim-witted son of Oscar the Grouch, the other like a chartreuse anteater with a genetic flaw. The White Sox also, in the early 1990s, folded in, for some reason, Waldo the White Sox wolf. (laughs) And then they finally introduced their current weird mascot, Southpaw, in 2003. So the White Sox have gone through four I guess mm-hmm. mascots over the years and it's interesting that we get to talk about mascots in the same episode that we talked about bat boys because they seem so antiquated as a thing like something baseball just done because it's done it for a long time but what might be even weirder is that mascots are they're growing they're expanding like the just a few years ago Clark right mm-hmm. Clark mm-hmm. the cub became a thing So at a time when the whole idea of mascots, as far as I can tell, is to help market to kids, right? Yeah, Kids love costumed characters, anthropomorphic whatevers, and I don't really know what purpose they serve. I don't care to see like the Mariner Moose when I go to Safeco (laughs) Field as an adult, but they're around and I guess maybe they still help and some mascots are so recognizable you can't ever get rid of them, but it's a strange thing to just have at a game, Mm -hmm. but as much as you'd think that it would lose forward momentum, Clark exists <laughs> and he became the first kind of real mascot of a, a storied franchise that didn't need a mascot. And I mean, I I realized it didn't really open this up very much to like a conversation. I don't have points to make about <laughs> mascots. It's just that Mr. Met got me thinking about mascots more than I think I've thought about them in a long time. Of course, mascots are not unique to baseball. There's Olympic Mascots, Or there's like mascots for drug companies or like business that makes toothbrushes. So there are just mascots everywhere for anyone that wants to market itself to kids. But it's not only interesting how many mascots there are, but it's an expanding field. The Reds have like four mascots. I learned a lot about mascots (laughs) last night and this morning when I was reading. Ace and Diamond were the official mascots of the Blue Jays, but then Diamond, the female bird, was eliminated, and then we were given Junior, who I think is Ace's son or little (laughs) brother or something, but what happened to Diamond, there's no good explanation, just a female bird is gone and dead. (laughs) The Diamondbacks have a mascot that's a bobcat, his name is Baxter, what I didn't know is that that mascot was created by J-Bell's son, (laughs) J-Bell was a player (laughs) on the team, came up with a mascot. There you go. There's Billy the Marlin, who I think Mm -hmm. many of us are familiar with. He starred in a fun sports center, I think it was, ESPN commercial, Uh 10 or 15 years ago. But Billy the Marlin, he has parents, by the way, Bill Sr. and Betty the Marlin. I don't know why mascots have such... (laughs) odd like they
0: construct histories and families and relationships for these things it's just it gets out of mascot expanded universe cinematic universe (laughs) yeah this this is very strange i didn't know a lot of these things but if baseball is having trouble marketing itself to young people does that mean we need more mascots or does that mean that the mascots aren't doing their jobs is that an indictment of mascots Well, I can tell you, here's a sentence that I read and copied to my notepad.
1: According to a recent Cincinnati.com poll of the Reds' four mascots, you heard me right, Gapper is the least popular amongst fans. He received 6% of the voting. Mr. Red received 23%. Rosie Red received 34%. And Mr. Redlegs received 47%. The Reds have four <laughs> active mascots. They just, uh, they've been folded in at different times. And so I guess the Reds haven't had the heart to eliminate mm. a mascot. But, yeah. but wait, there's more. <laughs> because... There was a general admission, play on words, right? Mm -hmm. General admission, a pun on the unreserved $4 seating section of the Astrodome. He was a mascot for the Houston Astros in the mid to late 1990s. He was played by a middle-aged white male, surprise, and wore a traditional U.S. cavalry uniform complete with gold stars he would affix to his uniform for every Astros home run hit in the dome. Whenever an Astro hit a home run, the general would fire off a cannon from his outfield platform that would often scare those seated near him. That's fine, whatever. General mission, plan words. He was killed off at the end of the 1999 <laughs> season when the Astros main mascot, Orbit, had him zapped by an alien ray gun oh, no. on the penultimate game of the regular season. <laughs> So the Reds don't have the heart to do anything with, they're just amassing mascots at this point. They just collect them, and then Cincinnati.com readers like some more than others. But the Astros had Orbit, he was a pre-existing mascot, then he went away, then they had general admission, marketing the team to children, and then Orbit killed him with an alien (laughs) ray gun during the second to last game of the season. And general admission was no more. He was just zapped. He was dead. Goodness. So they didn't just, like Diamond the Bird was, I guess, quietly eliminated by the Blue Jays. Which, that's fine, he just kind of disappeared, went back to his home planet, I don't know. But General Admission was just straight up murdered in cold blood by Orbit the Green alien, and that's just something that's fine. I don't know if you could do that, that's 19 years ago, but if mascots exist for the kids, they're traumatized because the General was killed. And you know what, General, he's military, right? Yeah. He has a cannon and then Orbit just zapped him with a ray. it's
0: unbelievable. Yeah. Seems like there would be diminishing mascot returns after the first <laughs> mascot, probably, so I kinda don't blame them for killing one off if that's the only way you could get rid of him. All right. Oh, oh no <laughs> There's no. More. I can keep going,
1: see? Because there are more mascots. You might be familiar with Wally, Wally the Green Monster. Mm-hmm. So, according to the Red Sox Promotions Department, Wally was a huge Red Sox fan, who in 1947 decided to move inside the left field wall of Fenway Park since it, quote, eats up hits that would easily be home runs at other parks. That doesn't seem like an explanation. That just seems like a second half of the sentence that they put in (laughs) to an unrelated first half of the sentence. Apparently, he was very shy and lived the life of a hermit For 50 years In 1997 On the 50th anniversary Of the green monster Being painted green He came out Of the manual scoreboard And has been interacting With players and fans Ever since Okay so I get They didn't want to Like the Red Sox Just like the Yankees And the Dodgers It would and the Cubs, I guess, would have difficulty unveiling a mascot because fans think they're too good for it. It's a traditional organization, and you feel like you wouldn't need a mascot when you're one of these like original baseball teams, basically. Mm -hmm. But they still unveiled Wally in 1997, and the explanation they came up with was that at that point, I guess, Wally was a 50-year-old hermit (laughs) who suddenly became very gregarious, and he grew a beard with the team in 2013, but... See, in January 2016, the Red Sox unveiled a new mascot named Tessie, who is Wally the Green Monster's little sister. Let's, okay, let's think about this, though. At this point, Wally the Green Monster, he's 53, 59, mm-hmm. 1947 to 69 years old, basically. Wally the Green Monster, 69 years old, all of a sudden... He's got a little sister. So, is the little sister also very old? What's the sister's story? Was the sister a hermit? If the sister has been around for so long, why did she allow Wally to live like a hermit for so long within a fence? I just,
0: it doesn't. A lot of continuity errors here. Yeah.
1: The backstory is not very well thought out. And it turns out also. The Red Sox had these other mascots that were retired in 2014. They were named Lefty and Righty, and oh, by the way, they were socks. They were each a large Red Sox with arms. <laughs> they were just there. The Red Sox retired them, but, you know, it's kind of weird to have mascots that aren't necessarily the team nickname, mm-hmm. but... Sometimes you don't really have a choice, and you should just have a mascot that isn't the team's nickname, because sometimes there are just multiple teams in Major League Baseball named after socks, and then you have mascots who are socks. and the Red Sox were like, why not have two? Why not have two socks represent our team? I don't know if socks are very effective marketing. When you were dealing with children, and the final mascot, the final mascot that I will discuss because I feel like it's appropriate. Colin Hanks directed an ESPN 30 for 30 short about the crazy crab. Are you familiar with the crazy crab? No. Tell me about the crazy crab. I will tell you one long paragraph about the crazy crab, and then we can finally be done with this episode (laughs) talking about the history of Major League Baseball mascots. The crazy crab was a mascot of the San Francisco Giants for the 1984 season. As opposed to other mascots, Crazy Crab was meant as an anti-mascot satirizing on the mascot craze that was going on at the time. Mm. By the way, apparently that craze still exists. Fans were encouraged to boo the mascot, played by actor Wayne Doba, and manager Frank Robinson appeared in a commercial with the crustacean where Robinson was restrained from attacking him. This encouragement may have worked too well as Giants fans regularly threw various dangerous objects at Crazy Crab, including beer bottles and batteries, and Crazy Crab's suit had to be reinforced with a fiberglass shell for protection. (laughs) The Crab was so hated players on both the Giants and even the opposition would throw rosin bags and other objects at the mascot. Doba sued the San Diego Padres after two of their players tackled him, causing Injuries <laughs> <laughs> created a mascot to be hated out of nothing, and they he became their job so too. Hated well. that players <laughs> actually, people just threw shit at him and hurt the person within. Unbelievable, crazy crap, greatest mascot in the history of professional sports.
0: Well, this has been a weird one, <laughs> <laughs> truly a wild episode. All right. <laughs> we're finished i think
1: <laughs> i got no more right. lucille by the way in 2008 lucille of the giants voted by forbes magazine as the best mascot in sports who knew i didn't know lucille was
0: a mascot in sports i didn't know forbes magazine cared all right talk to you next week Bye. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash wild. Five listeners who have already pledged their support include Ryan McLaughlin, Kyle Sharamataro, Jimmy Choi, Nick Wilwert, and George Bremer. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group. Very close to 6,000 members now At facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild, and you can rate and review And subscribe to the podcast on iTunes Thanks to Dylan Higgins for editing assistance The paperback edition of my book The Only Rules It Has to Work, Our Wild Experiment Building a New Kind of Baseball Team is out now You can get it on Amazon, has a new Afterword, and if you're looking for something else to Listen to, Michael Baman and I have a new episode Of the Ringer MLB show up, we talked about The Astros and whether the Astros And the Cubs have ruined rebuilding For the rest of the teams that have to try to rebuild after those clubs raised the rebuilding bar Keep your questions and comments For me and Jeff coming via email At podcast at Or via the Patreon messaging system Have a nice weekend, we'll talk to you soon Do you remember Walter Playing cricket in the thunder And the rain Do you remember Walter smoking Cigarettes behind your Garden gate Yes Walter